Welcome. We are, yep, welcome to Redemption Church. My name is Vince. I'm the lead pastor here. It's great to be with you guys. Um, I want to say something on the start is first, uh, as we get into the, the new year and as we get rolling, um, there's always kind of this January, I'm going to do the church thing, right? And, and so if that's your story, I want to say thanks for being here and you're welcome and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, w- I just want to encourage you to, to hang in there, right? To, to, to stay beyond maybe the month, right? We say most resolutions end, uh, we find, sociologically in February. And so I'm just going to challenge you right now to make it past February and just see what God does with more than February, okay? Um, and, I, and I think he's going to show up and I think it's going to be good. But that's just as an aside based on some conversations I had this week. Second announcement I want for us as we get started. If you are somewhat new to the church or maybe even been coming for a while and you just have questions about uh, why we're here, what we do beyond uh, just wanting to fill out an info card or pick up a pamphlet, we do a monthly lunch we call Roots Lunch and it's to get you to understand kind of the roots. What do we dig deep on? What are the things that are uh, unique about us? What makes us tick as a congregation? If you want to be part of that, you get free lunch and it's on the 31st, the final Sunday of every month at 12.30 immediately following service at our church offices located right next to Aspen Sports. Okay, And so if you want to be part of that, we just need you to sign up so we can buy the right amount of food, get the right amount of resources gathered together and set up. And so to sign up for that, you can just go online or just fill out an info card, talk to us at the Connect Desk, any one of these options, and we will get you dialed in and we'll have you at the lunch. We'll give you all the further details. But we would love for you to be there. Like if you are thinking, hey, we would like Redemption to be our home church, our family, our community, where we want to invest and be invested in, I cannot more highly recommend that you try and make it to this lunch to really hear who we are and why we exist. Again, that's on the 31st this month, which is a Sunday. And uh, usually, actually, I just looked at my notes. Usually they're at the church offices, but this month we're using that for something else. And so it's going to be at Bigfoot Barbecue. Okay, so um, this month, if you go to Roots Lunch, it's at Bigfoot Barbecue. So if you've been to Roots Lunch before, you can't come again because it's at Bigfoot Barbecue. Okay. Uh, that being said, turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 3, and we're going to get started. We have a lot to cover today. Judges 3, if you don't have a Bible, that's good. We want you to go and follow along with us. By taking a Bible, we'll bring down the aisles. So put your hand up, follow along with us. Don't feel weird about this. We pass them out every week. And if you don't own a Bible, you do now. This is our free gift to you. Please take this one on your way out. In order for us to catch up and to understand what we're talking about today, we got to know where we started last week. Okay, we are in week two of the book of Judges. Last week we did a three-chapter intro to the book of Judges. Why and what is happening. So we need to go all the way back to Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses is called out by God, go get the people of God, the Israelites, take them out of Egypt, bring them into the promised land that I will call you to. Moses takes them into the wilderness, does not bring them all the way to the promised land. The, the leadership mantle is handed over to this man named Joshua. Joshua then moves in and Joshua is raised up as the new leader over the people of God. He then moves into the promised land and succeeds at the mission of subduing its people, driving its people out. When he is alive, Israel does follow God. Israel does do what they're supposed to do. But something happens to Joshua, which happens to every human being, and Joshua dies. As soon as Joshua dies, everything starts to go bad for Israel. 
there was not a new leader that was raised up underneath him that would take over this mantle of leadership to lead the people into the promised land to be able to fulfill the calling of driving out the inhabitants of Canaan and then placing the people of God there to call it home that they might use that as a hub to bless the nations. And so from the moment Joshua dies, this goes poorly. The entire book of Judges, we feel, have three major themes all summed up up in one verse and how this goes bad for Israel, and it's Judges 17, 6. And it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Three major themes. The first one, the people of God have rejected God as their king. Okay? They have rejected God as their king. God used to be their Lord, the one who shepherded, cared for, that they trusted in, believed in, followed, led them into battle. They begin to reject God as king. That is theme number one. Theme number two is then they act as king themselves. They begin to do whatever they deemed right. They were Lord of their own lives. The last theme is that they became Canaanized, okay? In other words, Canaan, the people of Canaan, began to influence Israel far more than Israel was influencing Canaan, which was God's mission, that they would bless, that they would influence, that they would be the people doing that work. Instead, they become Canaanized. They chase after Canaan's gods, Canaan's idols. These are important for us. The entire book of Judges is important for us because is this not us? Okay, is this not us? Do we not live in a culture? Do we not live in a worldview and a reality that says, God is no longer king, I am king, therefore I do whatever I want to do? Is that not the resounding message of the culture that you and I live in? Is it not the air we breathe? Is it not the worldview we're sold? There is no king. God is not king, you are king, so do whatever you want. And then on our doorstep, the church... Have we, are we not more guilty of being influenced by the culture than the church influencing the world the way we're supposed to, the way that we're called to, to bring the kingdom of God to the city of Flagstaff or wherever you call home? Are we not guilty of this? Is this not us? Today is not just a celebration as we look towards what tomorrow is of Martin Luther King Day. If you don't know what today is, as far as a Sunday, it is Sanctity of Life Sunday. So back when Reagan was president, on January 22nd, 1973, Roe v. Wade was passed. And so during his presidency, he inaugurated on January 22nd, there would be a day of remembrance and prayer for the sanctity of life. The church has adopted this now that on the Sunday, the third Sunday of every January, that churches would pray for and seek God's will and hope for the sanctity of life. This day to me is very tied to Martin Luther King Day because both of them, as we'll read, as I'm going to read this letter from this guy, Russell Moore, and there's a letter he wrote to his congregation that I was reflecting on and praying over this week, and I was convicted very deeply by it, weeping and that type of thing, and the reason why, and he'll bring this up, that these two days are so linked is is they both shouldn't exist. And this doesn't mean that I don't think we shouldn't celebrate Martin Luther King. And this doesn't mean that I don't think that we shouldn't celebrate the sanctity of life. It means that in a world that has gone so wrong, it is a devastating reality that we have to celebrate these days. It's a devastating reality that we have to celebrate a man who had to oppose slavery and the oppression of an entire race. 
that is something we lament over. Let's read this letter, and we'll talk a bit more. Now, Russell Moore is the president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and he said this. He says, I hate sanctity of human life Sunday because I'm reminded that we have to say things to one another that human beings shouldn't have to say. Mothers shouldn't kill their children. Fathers shouldn't abandon their babies. No human life is worthless, regardless of skin color, age, disability, or economic status. The very fact that these things must be proclaimed is a reminder of the horrors of this present darkness. I hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I'm reminded that as I'm preaching, there are babies warmly nestled in wombs who won't be there tomorrow. I'm reminded that there are children, maybe even blocks from my pulpit, who will be slapped, punched, and burned with cigarettes before nightfall. I'm reminded that there are elderly men and women languishing away in loneliness, their lives pronounced to be a waste. But I also love Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. When I think about the fact that I serve a congregation with ex-orphans all around adopted into loving families, I love to reflect on the men and women who serve every week in the pregnancy centers for women in crisis. And I love to see men and women who have aborted babies find their sins forgiven. Yes, even this sin and their hearts and consciences cleansed by the blood of Christ. We'll always need Christmas. We'll always need Easter. But I hope, please Lord, I pray someday soon that sanctity of human life day is no longer necessary. Is this not us? It is what we see in the book of Judges. Is it not now? Is this not the present reality of the culture we reside in where there is no king and so we decide this makes sense to us and so I will do whatever I feel like, regardless of who it affects. Is this not us? If we take this approach and we understand then that the church is supposed to be the beacon of hope and light in the midst of this present darkness, then we need to tune our ears in, turn our volumes up and say, Lord, what do you have for me over the next seven weeks as God, you convict us through the Holy Spirit to be more like your son Christ who lays his life down that others might flourish? There is an easy way to make it out of this entire sermon series. Not convicted. Not moved towards the gospel. Not moved towards grace. And not moved towards mission. And it's simply by saying, I'm good. It's simply by buying into the consistent reality that you are king and lord of your own life. Then you can just say, all right, whatever. Say what you want, man. I'm out of here in 45 minutes. I'll go do my thing. Please let us not do that. Please let us not do that. If this is your church or you're just visiting, maybe you never come back again. Whatever it is, do not allow that to happen. Whenever you're confronted with the word of God, do not say no. God, what would you have for us? Okay. That's why this text, I think, will be so important for us today. The last part of introduction before we jump into this specific text, I'm going to put up the cycle slide if we could. Israel finds themselves in this consistent cycle Throughout the entire book, every single judge that we will look at has to go through this whole cycle. If you can't read, I'll read out for you. It's cycles of the people of God. And it starts with one there on the top right. And it says, sin. 
Okay, so they sin against God. The people of God rebel against him too, says servitude. In the midst of that, then they find themselves, they must serve another leader, another nation. God gives them under the hands of other nations. Number three, supplication. In other words, the people of God then say, Lord, help, because we're in trouble. Number four, salvation. God raises up a judge, a deliverer, and says, all right, here you go. They will deliver you. And then lastly, silence or rest. The land, the people of God experience rest finally. But it only lasts a little bit until the cycle starts over again and over again and over again as the people of God continue to chase after idol and upon idol upon idol and other God upon other God upon other God. And they say, this is what we want. We will do our own thing. You are not our king. And so they enter this cycle and it happens to them multiple times throughout the book. So today we look at three cycles, three judges. First, Ehud, second, Shamgar, and three, Deborah. Now, here's the hope in all this because this has started really heavy, right? Here's the hope in all of this especially as we learn today. God does always accomplish his mission no matter what is stacked against him, okay? There is nothing that can rise up against God that God cannot defeat, that God will not win. He is consistently and always proving himself, and the reality is he often raises up people where it does not make sense that they should be the one to deliver. He saves people from hopeless situations in surprising ways, and I think he does this because when the underdog wins, there is more glory given, right? Where there's more shock, there's more surprise, there's more awe. It makes, it's such a better story. There's more praise given to whoever is the leader of the underdog. I was watching a movie with Verity this, uh, actually probably about a few weeks ago now, and I'd just love to know by a show of hands, because it's obviously a classic, one of the greatest cinematic features of all time. It's called Little Giants. Yes? Anybody seen Little Giants? Not that many. Okay? We're going to show that next week. Um, Little Giants is your classic Mighty Ducks, big green story, right, where the underdog team uh, must play and try and defeat the juggernaut. Right? So this one's about peewee football. There's a little team called the Little Giants. They are all the rejects from the Cowboys, right? And the Giants could never beat the Cowboys, except for like the last 10 to 15 years because the Cowboys are terrible. That's just real life, okay? <laughs> the, the Giants could never beat the Cowboys. Why? Because the Giants are filled with the rejects, the kids who weren't strong enough, weren't big enough, weren't fast enough, weren't smart enough, didn't know football, couldn't catch, couldn't run, couldn't throw. They had no business winning this game. Yet, of course, you kind of know how these Disney films work. They do end up winning the game. But at the end of the final game, where there's only one team that will be allowed to run and play for the city that they are from, and it has to be the winner of this game. So they go, and it's one of the last plays of the game. Can anyone remember the name of the play that they call? Come on. No? Annexation of Puerto Rico. Okay? So, so they, they call this play the Annexation of Puerto Rico. Okay? And the way the play goes, and if you're familiar with football, it's like a fumble ruski play. Okay, so the, the center goes to hike the ball, pretending to give it to the quarterback, but he actually holds on to it. Meanwhile, the quarterback runs this direction, and then all of the defense follows. The center grabs the ball and begins to run moving forward. Okay, this this is an image, albeit flawed. This is an image of what's happening here, right? This big 
fat reject of a sinner has no reason being the one to deliver the victory for the little giants. He's overweight. He cannot run. He's literally experiencing an asthma attack as he runs. The ball's falling out, right? There's literally at one point a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in his helmet. And so he's running with it. And then what happens? He gets tackled. The ball is fumbled. And you think, okay, all is right with the world. He shouldn't have scored. Finally, this movie actually makes some sense. But then it's picked up even more by Devin Sawa, who if you don't know who he is, he played Casper. Remember in the movie Casper as a kid? So he's gorgeous, right? Like Backstreet Boy style. And so you're like, okay, you're good at sports. You're attractive. This all makes sense. You should be the one to go. So he goes, he gets tackled. And then at the very end, he fumbles the ball and it goes to a, I kid you not, probably a 60 pound, the skinniest kid you've ever seen on the planet type of child. And he has glasses and he can't run and he doesn't know what he's doing. And somehow this kid is the one who scores the touchdown and the little giants win the football football game. They are the champions of the city. God, okay. He raises up kids like this to accomplish his purposes. And obviously, obviously, the circumstances are far graver. When you read the Bible, when we get into the book of Judges, especially today, we're going to see three stories of three people who have no business being the people that God raises up to deliver Israel. It doesn't make sense. They're not, if we got together and voted, okay, we knew we were going to war, right? This church, and we're voting for three people, right? Like, you're not taking, and I'm, I'm thinking of some people, I'm not going to say their name, but you're not taking that person, you're taking me, right? You're like, okay, like, we want Vince to go to battle for us. No, you're going to take the people who seem the most qualified, who fit into the culture, who seem to make the most chance, give us the greatest chance of victory. God never does that. And I think the reason he never does it is because the underdog always gets more glory. I think it's because then we would look at these stories and say, God, you have to be that good that this guy and this gal were the people to deliver Israel. It doesn't make sense. It confounds the mind. But all of it in the entire book of Judges, hear me, the entire book of Judges is meant for us, the people of God today, the church in 2016, to praise God, to celebrate God, to make much of what he's accomplished because when you forget God, you do what Israel did, which was forget him and move towards sin and idolatry. When we remember the gospel, we move towards righteousness. This is the story of the book of Judges. And so he will raise up people that don't make sense. And and honestly, this is what Jesus does when he raises the 12 apostles. And this is what God does now when he calls Redemption Flagstaff and the rest of the Christians in our city to go and bring the kingdom to Flagstaff. It doesn't make sense that you and I are part of this. We're not that good. We're not smart enough. We're not wise enough. We're not fast enough. We're not anything enough. God is and God fulfills his purposes. Amen? This has to be a resounding truth for us as we look at the text. Otherwise, I think we just say, no, I got this. If God is not made much of in your life, you will assume you're good enough to be your own king. So let's begin to see him as greater. Let's look at our first judge today, Ehud, in Judges 3, verses 12 through 
15, okay? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Okay, so again, let's just look at this through the cycle, right? So the cycle begins. It says, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then we have servitude. Eglon of Moab defeats Israel, imprisons Israel, rules over Israel. Again, this is another thing that, that doesn't make sense. I, I think when you look at this story, and as we're going to look at who Eglon was and who the Moabite people were, they had no business defeating Israel. Like, this is God's people trained. They should have won this battle, but they lose. And I think oftentimes we can look at this story, and I've even heard it preached of, man, how silly that Israel found themselves under the oppression of this guy. Like how silly that they found themselves under the oppression of the Moabites, of a king who was sloppy and lazy and overweight and could not run his own people. How did he overtake Israel? And I begin to think of us and say, is this not us? Are we not enslaved? Do we not get ruled by things where it is absolutely silly that we let them rule us? Is it not foolish that the church today finds themselves sacrificing their lives, their time, their money on the altars of fame, success, and sex as opposed to the altar of Jesus Christ our Savior? Is it not foolish for us? Is this not us? Supplication, Israel cries out to the Lord and then salvation, the Lord raises up our first judge today, Ehud, the deliverer. Now, it says that he is a left-handed man. This is going to come in handy. I'm going to cliff note version the rest of the story for you, and here's why. So Ehud builds and makes a sword, and then he goes to the king. He goes to Eglon and says, well, I need to bring a tribute to Eglon the king. Now, a normal, and I've done a lot of sword fighting, obviously, so normally, you, if you are right-handed, you fashion your sword on your left leg, so when you need to draw it, you draw it from here, because this is just awkward, right? And so um, this is what he does. Because he's left-handed, he puts it on his right side. So he draws this way, right? This is important because the, ju- the guards, for whatever reason, choose to not look and inspect this leg because usually the sword is here, and so he's allowed to visit the king, give tribute to the king with a sword in his possession, okay? Again, Moabites, not the smartest people, okay? He walks in, he gives the tribute, and then he says to Eglon the king, hey, before I go, I want to tell you a secret, Right? And Eglon, really into gossip girl, says, come on, right? (laughs) Sends everyone out of the room, okay? Says, you know what? Guards, go. Just me and this guy. So they leave. They close the door behind him. And then, of course, our hero Ehud draws the sword and then draws it and stabs it straight into the belly of Eglon, who is described in the text as a very, very, very fat man to the point where when he shoves it in, the sword gets stuck and out spills out a lot of nasty things, okay? I only tell you this part of the story because it does become relevant. Ehud then kills the king Eglon, flees and sneaks out, okay? Locks the door. The guards begin to smell what is the decay and the excrement of Eglon and they begin to think, you know what? Well, the king must... You know, he just must be using the restroom. That's like literally what they say. Like, that's Eglon. He does that, right? And so 
So they begin to think through this, and then uh, this is part of the story, so I'm not trying to be crass or dirty. And then they think, man, this is getting really, really bad. So eventually they say, the smell has gotten so bad, let us go check on him. They finally go into the king, and they find him dead. This entire series of events allows for Ehud to escape from Eglon, or escape from the guards and go and rally the people of Israel, where together then they go and they conquer the Moabites. Okay? This is the way, this is the guy that somehow gets raised up to deliver the people. A left-handed guy, which back then was a huge minority, and he was a Benjamite, which was the smallest and least important, if you will, uh, tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. Yet he is the guy that God raises up to go and do this, and he accomplishes it in absolutely crazy ways. The last part of our cycle comes through, and we have silence and rest, Judges 3.30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Okay. Judge number two. This guy's going to be a lot faster. His name is Shamgar. There's a very short reference to him, and they think that honestly he might have come right on the tail of, uh, of uh, Ehud and, and, and pushing back another people group so that the people could experience that 80 years of rest. But it says this in Judges 3.31, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel, right? So maybe during the Moab, uh, the Moab, Moabite occupation, there was also the Philistines who were kind of causing a bit of a ruckus. And so Shamgar is raised up to go and take care of them. The cycle in this one is implied as opposed to being uh, very overt, okay? The last one we're going to look at today. Oh, let me, let me say this. Sorry, Shamgar, the reason why, why in the world would, would they use Shamgar? Shamgar is not even an is- Israelite. He's not even one of the people of God. Shamgar is a Canaanite, okay? He doesn't even belong to the people of God, yet God uses him to deliver Israel. What is he thinking? Last story is Deborah, okay? Deborah, now this is the famous one. This is a famous one. A lot of people have heard a sermon probably on Deborah at some point if you've been in church for a little while, but Deborah's, Deborah's the big one. She is, uh, well, a woman, which hence makes sense because of the she. She, as a woman, did not command armies, Right? Women did not go off to battle. They did not fight for Israel. They did not command whole armies. And yet she will be the one to be raised up as the judge of Israel and will be the leader, even though someone else is about to, uh, to drop their responsibility, if you will. So let's read, continue on in chapter 4, verse 1. And I'm moving quick on the narrative, I know, but a lot of the story will get us towards the application for us. But let's keep going. Verse 1 in chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. Uh, moving on to verse 6. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Okay, so key people for this text. First, Deborah, the prophetess, and judge at the time, Barak, uh, not 
our president, but the commander of Israel's army, okay? Uh, Barak will be raised up to be the commander of Israel's army. Jabin is the king of Canaan, who is the king, the oppressor of Israel. Sisera is the commander of Canaan's army, right? So he's the main guy that will fight. And then in all of this, again, we see this cycle. They are oppressed by this regime. Israel cries out, and God raises up a deliverer, Deborah. Now, I'm going to give us the cliff note version of this as well. Deborah goes to Barak and says, has not God given us these people into your hands? Is he not ready once again to deliver Israel? And so she says, Barak, you're the guy. He's raising you up. Go and get the 10,000 men and you will be the one to defeat the Canaanites. Instead, he replies to her. He says, well, I'll go, but only if you come with me. So this huge call, she's saying to him, listen, no, this isn't me saying this is a good idea. God, our Savior, the Lord, the guy that you claim to know, he says, I will hand them over to you. You just need to be obedient. And he says, I'll do it, but only if you come with. So he goes like full, like elementary school asking a girl out for the first time style here, right? He's like, I'll do it, but only if you come with me. First time I asked a girl out, I knew that Ellen Keel had a thing for me. This is fifth grade, okay? And, uh, and I knew it. It was told to me multiple times by my friend. He says, no, she'll say yes if you say, let's hang out by the jungle gym. And, uh, and I was like, I don't know, man. I'll do it, but you got to come with. And he did, and then there I am, and I'm asking, and he's standing right next to me as kind of the wingman. It's just this really awkward thing, and it didn't last very long. It was fifth grade. And... Uh, but I remember even thinking back at that moment, saying, like, what a, what a loser. Like, who does that? Like, I had to bring a friend along, and I doubted, okay, what was already proven to be true. Um, Barack's fault here is not that he's fearful. Barack's problem is not that he does not know what to do. Barack's fault is not that he has doubt. Barack's fault is that he does not believe God. He does not trust God. That, that is Barak's problem here. It, it, listen, we, and, and fast forward us, is this not a... Man, God is called the church to be the witness to the world, to stand for truth, right? To be light in a dark place, to do things sometimes that don't seem to make sense, that are hard or whatever, to live sacrificial lives that others might flourish, It's not that we should never live with fear or doubt. It's that we should never not believe God. Okay, like, I I am fearful of many things in this world, unfortunately, if I'm honest with you. Like, man, when it comes to just even evangelism, which used to just be something that was my thing, even now, I'm like, I don't want to feel weird, and I don't want them to feel weird, and it's just weird, and I hate weird things. There's fear there, and that's okay. But never should I doubt the reality Never should I stop believing that God has called me as his follower to be an ambassador for him in the world. Never can I doubt to the point where I all of a sudden will begin to forget what scripture has commanded of the people of God. To care for the orphan and the widow. To care for the marginalized. To pray for, to celebrate those who have been pushed to the side. The commands of the church are heavy and they are high. And never should they be doubted as to that he has called us. Now we can live in fear, but never do we doubt God. 
That was his big sin, but he uh, decides, all right, if you go with, I'll go. Deborah says, all right, I'm going to go with you, but you need to know that because I'm going, that the glory for this, the credit for this will go to a woman. The credit for this will go to a woman. We would naturally think that this woman is Deborah, but it might not work out that way. Okay? So Deborah goes, they find the 10,000 men in the midst of their pursuit to go take over Sisera's army. Sisera raises up his 900 chariots and goes and meets them on the battlefield. God then gives them over, okay? People of God defeat Sisera's army and Sisera flees. Sisera is going to go and find himself at the house of Heber the Kenite. And you have to go back and look at a little study here, but Heber is actually a traitor to the people of God. The Kenite family, or the Kenite tribe, was uh, related to Israel. They're not part of Israel, but they're related to Israel. So they were allies of Israel, yet Heber leaves them and goes and does his own thing, becomes a traitor, a Benedict Arnold. He is on the outside. And Sisera finds himself now at Heber's house. And when he gets there, he's greeted by J.L., Heber's wife. And there's Jael, and she invites him in. And we're going to see in verse 18 as I read how the rest of the story unfolds. It says, And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, and this is just like crazy, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. No kidding. Right? Like, that is such a funny addition. Not many people with a tent peg through the back of their head survive that. This woman, J.L., a traitor's wife, right? God raises up in a moment and says, you will be the one who will deliver Israel. The glory of this battle will go to you. So she comes up behind him, sneaks behind him, drives the tent peg through and then Barak, who is in pursuit, comes to the tent as well, finds that his enemy has fallen, and then goes, takes the rest of the army, pursues Jabin the king, defeats them, and the land again experiences rest. Okay. This time for 40 years, the land experiences rest. This is a significant amount of time. All of chapter 5 is an entire song written by Deborah and Barak, and Every step of the way, in every part of the song, nothing gives praise to Deborah, nothing gives praise to Barak, nothing gives praise to Jael. They mention it, there's narrative, but all of it, the thrust of the entire song is look at what God has done. It is look how God has once again delivered his people. It's Look how we could not do it outside of him. It is a celebration. It is a worship moment for the people of God to once again remember the goodness of God that they had forgotten, which has led them into the same cycle over and over and over again. Okay. Remember God. God raises up. He saves and delivers 
people in hopeless situations in surprising ways by people who do not have any right to be his deliverers. And there is no better example of this than Jesus Christ. There is no better example of one raised up than Jesus Christ. And I just wrote a little blurb on Christ. When you really think about it, he was an unattractive minority infant born to a poor virgin in a land ruled by an oppressive tyrant surrounded by an existing theocracy that wanted nothing more than to destroy him. If you are trying to save the world and you need a conquering hero, you don't put him in these circumstances unless you're God and you're trying to say, I'm that good. I'm that incredible. I'm that amazing. I'm that powerful. I'm that worthy of worship. I'm that worthy of glory, etc., etc., etc. Christ is the perfect example for us to look back on and say, God, you raise up people who in their circumstances make no sense to be the ones that will be part of the deliverance of a culture, of a people, and yet you do it by your power so that we will see you, worship you, and give you praise, and then go and do likewise. So church, is this not us? Is this not us that this text speaks of today? To say, God has raised us up. And like Deborah for Barak, Deborah was raised up that she would go with Barak to accomplish the mission that he was called to. Did God not raise Christ? That now with the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, do we now walk with a raised Jesus, with an alive God, present with you and present with me at all times, that we now, as the church, as Christians, as followers of Christ, would be part of the mission of God to deliver and redeem the entire world. Thank you, Lord. He didn't send you to do it by yourself. Deborah becomes the picture of the Holy Spirit raised up for us that then we could go in confidence now and fulfill the mission that God has called us to. And that mission is to be the light and the beacon of hope in a world that, as Moore said, is filled with present darkness. That has decided, God, we don't need you. That has decided, I got this. Morality, whatever, I will figure it out on my own. I'll do my own thing. In the midst of that culture, there is to be a select people raised up that are God's people, the church, that are supposed to continually resound the call of a God who delivers. Not just for this group, but for the whole world. This is our calling. This is what we are to do. Is this not us? As we wrap up today, we're going to sing a few more songs. And intentionally, Camille and I were talking, we chose the song In Christ Alone for our communion song. I love this song lyrically. Like the lyrics of In Christ Alone to me just every time floor me and blow me away. It just tells the narrative of an infant child raised up that saves the world and then the ongoing hope of eternal glory that exists in his life, death, and resurrection. So as we sing this song, let us remember God. Let us remember what he has done. If we forget it, lest we forget and we enter into the same cycle over and over and over again 
as opposed to living in the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit and God in our life, what he has accomplished, that we would leave this place and not just never enter into the cycle ourselves, but help a culture that seems to continually do it, to miss it, maybe even for just a bit, to experience rest and peace, that we could not have to constantly toil amidst the weight of the sin and brokenness of this world. There's one last thing I want to say before I pray. And I just want to say, if you're here, and you're just visiting, and especially if you're visiting and and you're not a Christian, first, thank you for coming. I always know it can be weird to come into a situation like this, just surrounded by all these weird people who raise hands during song. Well, we don't do that, but um, mostly just me over on the side. But you're in a situation that's not usual or comfortable. I, I just want to say, I want to acknowledge, thank you for coming. And I want to say, the weight of this text I, is heavy. And I remember early on, before I became a Christian, I started reading the Bible before I was a Christian through the Old Testament. And it's just not where you're supposed to start usually, right? Like, they're like, read John, you know, or read like the gospel. And let's, here's like 15 verses about love and grace, right? Instead of like, oh, like few chapters in, there's this talking snake. And then there's like this brother kills a brother. I mean, and then you get to a book like Judges and there is weightiness to this. And if there's anything I want for you to see today, It's that in the midst of a broken people, a broken society, God was not the one dictating sin for the people in these stories. We do evil to one another without anybody's help. We betray, we do all sorts of unimaginable things, even in our own hearts and surely overtly. We don't need God's help for that. And in the midst of that type of world, there is a God There is a creator, there is a savior who shouts from the rooftops, I love you and I've come to redeem you, your story, no matter what sin has ever been part of your life, whatever sin was there yesterday, 10 years ago, this morning or tomorrow, I love you and I went to a cross and I died and was raised that you would experience the hope and redemption and never continually have to live in this cycle ever again. And so I, I just want you to know that because I get the weight of this. And so we love you. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. God, thank you for just heavy, weighty texts in your word as you communicate to us. God, sometimes I feel that you just are banging me over the head with just the same stuff about seeing how good you are, seeing how jacked up I am, and then seeing the call of me as a Christian and as a member of your church and your body. And Lord, I repent of my own stubbornness to not obey that you need to keep telling me. God, I pray that you would shape me and mold me to hear your voice more clearly and respond with more faith. And I pray that for our people today. God, that we receive your word, Lord. Holy Spirit, we know you are with us, that you were raised up to travel with your people. 
So Holy Spirit, do the work that we cannot do ourselves, which is to change our own hearts, to renew our own minds, to become different people. God, we do not come up with faith. You grant faith. That is a gift. God, may we be obedient to that which you've given us and respond with a pursuit that understands that these are urgent times. Lord, I pray for the communities around our nation today that still suffer from the weight of years and years and years of oppression and persecution across minority and black churches specifically. Got to pray joy for them today, celebration for them today, a clearer picture of the gospel than ever before. God, we pray for Jesus, we thank you for the 50 million unborn that I think live life with you now over the last 40 years. God, we pray that you would bring swift, righteous movement amongst the people of God to stand for all life. As Moore said, Lord, for the unborn, for the children, for the elderly, and everyone in between. God, on a day like today, we celebrate you because you are a deliverer. You are a restorer and a redeemer. Pray for single moms, the effort they have to raise their kids, single dads. Pray for women who are right now debating the reality of what will they do with this fetus. God, I just pray your, not even ever still voice, your loud, reckoning, thunderous voice to say that you love them, that you will provide for them, protect them, as you will for the baby that is inside them. There's so much to pray for, Lord. I probably should go. But Jesus, do a work in my heart. Do a work in the hearts of the people that are here today that we would stop trying to rationalize our comfortable Christianity. And we'd really begin to see, is this not us? Have we not fallen into the same trap? And have we not been called to more? Move in your people today as we worship and celebrate you. You are so good and faithful to people who do not deserve it. Thank you, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen.